and welcome to the DMs Book Club, a twice month. No, oh no, that's a different podcast. Hello and welcome to the DMs Book Club, a podcast where we read about some Dungeons and Dragons and discuss how we might include it in our role playing campaigns. This is episode nineteen. Um, so hey, we made it. Uh, with amazing, <laughs> I know. Nineteen. No, 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 nineteen. Okay, with me as always, the person who does keep count of things and is very good at doing all this sort of math stuff that I'm not good at. Uh, it's Ryan. Hi, Ryan. <laughs> How are you? Reputation. That's nonsense. I'm wow. the most disorganized person you know. I mean, you've got yes, but I don't. You know, there's a nicer way of putting that. I think. Okay, good. And I, I like to think that I'm good at making things up as I go along. I'm good, Fiona. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Uh, it's it's getting closer to winter. Apparently, it's was it seven, eight, eight or seven weeks till Christmas, which is a frightening. When we're recording this, it's a frightening. Uh, it's a frightening time. I did not I expect it to be so close. So. And just think, when people listen to this, it's even closer. So if you haven't got your presents yet, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, how are you even going to show that without endless capitalism and expendable purchases? Honestly, what are you doing? So Ryan, what are we talking about today? What is our topic of choice? We have dipped into a few times some of the alternative rules that you can bring into a campaign or a setting in Dungeons and Dragons to spice up the rules or to change the flavor of what you're looking at. Um, you can do that in a plot sense. You can do that in a general mechanic sense. And we're going to be talking about some more of those changes you can make specifically. And we've spoken a little bit about creepier settings and weirder, more eldritch settings. We're going to be talking about the two additional ability scores the dungeon master's guide throws in just randomly and says oh would you like to play with these they're two different options which is honor and sanity as well as talking about some of the adventuring options that come after it to do with fear and horror to do with variants on resting and and sort of that gritty realism that you can put into a campaign (laughs) as well as talking about guns because you know why not (laughs) I think like in any fantasy book I've read, there's always been a section said, but what if you want to include guns? And so this was <laughs> this was no surprise to me whatsoever. But yeah. Yeah. But interesting to hear about the honor and horror element of it. Obviously, sanity is a big thing in quite a few other sort of science fiction-y and horror games. But mm. honor, now that's interesting. That's an interesting concept. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. Yeah, it is. And and they are two new ability scores that you can throw into a game that effectively expand on the base six that you've got. So traditionally, every character in D&D has strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. So your three sort of physical stats and your three mental stats per se. Now, I don't know if you were the same, but when I first got into D&D, the difference between intelligence and wisdom I always struggled with generally, like I couldn't quite get the difference between, okay, right. So one is sort of mental fortitude and one is sort of mental ability. And I was Mm. sort of thinking about it and going, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't quite get that one. Mm. It's, it sort of expands upon that because honor and sanity are both, uh, I would call mental stats that you can put in sort of to do with your characters way that they approach the world to how they interact with the world. And once you get your head around them, they do make sense, but you mm-hmm. have to change the way you think about the plot a little bit. And they really do work in very particular campaign styles that you want to introduce. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but I think you'd have either or of these options. You might not have 
both of them in. It says right at the beginning of this chapter, it talks about this whole chapter is about different rules you can apply to your settings, but it suggests that try one or two rather than all of them, which I, which might seem like common sense, but I've been in games where, well, we think about it, we talked about the, the speed factor combat one uh, last time and how crazy that was. Could you imagine doing that plus any of these additional rules? Like, I, there'd be a lot of admin and logistics for the GM, I think. So yeah, exactly. It, I feel like with all the variants we're talking about, we're not necessarily saying that they're going to be applied to the same one shot or to the same campaign. And the other thing it does say is like, it talks about like, Will this benefit your one-shot and campaign in applying these rules? But also, do your players want to try it? Mm. And I think that's quite an important one to sort of think about as well, because it's all very well that you as a GM, you are the facilitator of the world. You are the, you know, you are the person that comes back to it. But if the players aren't enjoying it and you're forcing them to look after honor scores and sanity scores, et cetera, then it's not going to be a fun time for anyone. Exactly. Getting the players understanding that they are enjoying the rules that you put in. This applies not just to everything we're talking about this session, but actually to the session you did last time around as well with the initiative rules Mm -hmm. and the combat rules. It all applies in that same vein. If people aren't enjoying it, it doesn't bring anything to it. And as we talk about these, you can decide for yourself whether you think these would be good additions to a particular campaign. I think I can I can sense a particular setting <laughs> that both would work quite well in. And whether you introduce both or one at a time, as, as Fiona says, is up to you. Mm-hmm. Essentially, these are a seventh and eighth stat you are including them on a character sheet as you would do any of the other six stats they all have their own saving throws they all have their own skill proficiencies the proficiencies are a little bit blurred you have to rule them as a dm and treat them more as a sort of general you know make a sanity check as opposed to oh there is a particular skill like sleight of hand or stealth that Mm -hmm. is specified to the others but there are ways you can bring these in it talks about different ways you can include the standard array or the optional point buy system or to roll for them or whatever you may find but honor is more of a reflection about the way your character can hold themselves they know the social etiquette of a situation they can resist the temptation to react in stressful situations but they know how best to act in a situation to not break some sort of code of the setting or to social engagement it's a funny one to sort of get your head around the guide brings sort of a setting of like an asian samurai culture or potentially uh, a sort of old english knights templar mm-hmm. setting but i could see any campaign set within a really rigid hierarchy or within a so say i can think of a particular victorian society for instance or maybe you're at a school or boarding school or military school that you are trapped within. I could see it being in a situation where there is some sort of very strict religious or magical regime, um, even potentially a political regime that rules over your characters, like a police state, for instance. I'm thinking more of the sort of dystopian, all-seeing, big brother sort of society mm-hmm. where actually your characters not only have to go through life but they have to do it in such a way where they can fit into the laws of that world and not stand out that's sort of what honor represents so the the book gives some examples so if your character is unsure how to act with honor or wants to surrender while trying to save face those are quite classical sort of 
samurai and, and knight-esque ways of dealing with things, but also using proper etiquette in a delicate situation, trying to influence someone else with your own honor. And I would add to that things like knowing how to avoid particular attention in any given situation, how to avoid the watch of an overseeing dictator or police state, know how to progress or seek an audience with somebody. All those things could be expanded into honor. So it really does suit a campaign with a very strict social or I would say protection imposed upon your characters. For me, reading about honor stuff, like it says, it, I feel stereotypical. You instantly sort of go to the Asian cultures. You think of, you know, sort of Mulan or anything like that, you know, where honor is is seen as like the pinnacle of society. But actually some of the examples you get there are really good. The idea of having maybe like a Blade Runner-esque mm. uh, type society or anything like that. So I think it's good to sort of mention that, you know, there is a fine line between sort of stereotyping and, you know, uh, appreciation of certain cultures. So I would say with certainly honor, whilst it feels i would say a lot for more like maybe the role-playing aspect of it it is like a, a glorified charisma check in some circumstances but i think it is about making sure from the offset that you're not just including it because you think it's a cool idea that you want to be like oh yeah we're going to do some honor checks it is inbuilt into the world you're building so right from the beginning it shouldn't be as an afterthought and like you said you come up with certain scenarios where you're like the reason we have honor is because of this society's structure and this and mm -hmm. writing it into the history so i think that that's why i feel i feel like honor for me like reading about it it does feel a bit vague in places because it does talk about like what's the one it says like being unsure how to act with honor and i think you need to really define like what the code of conduct is right yeah. from the beginning yeah. and have that the way i like to think about it is you want to give yourself an example of a class that might use honor as a main stat because once you get that into your head i think it sort of makes sense yeah. like the way i thought about intelligence and wisdom back when i learned about dnd right from the outset was to think about the classes that used the, the you know those stats as a main attribute so the difference between a wizard who is very intelligence focused and that sense of learning and passionate thoroughness about the way that they approach intellectual matters compared to a cleric, for instance, who has always had wisdom as a stat. It's more of an intuitive sense of purpose, common sense, a, a general view upon the world. So you think, okay, in this scenario, how would you have a character that had honor as the main stat? And I was thinking, as you say, Blade Runner is a really good example of a sort of campaign where imagine you have a world, it doesn't have to be futuristic or sci-fi, but you have a world where everything is ruled by a particular regime, be it corporations or be it a overarching police state. And there is fear in the world that every single person that you walk around in a city, be it the police or secret service, citizens will grasp you up or report you to the state if you do anything that stands out. Like there is that sense of fear. Voldemort has won. Everyone is a Death Eater mm. or, you know, Sauron has taken over and his eye watches over everything. It can be in any sort of fantasy state that you want. Mm. So perhaps you have a ranger or a rogue who uses honor as their main stat and they act as your guide throughout the campaign. So your campaign of three or four characters who are a motley detective crew who are trying to, very Blade Runner-esque, discover the secret of, you know, the corporations and something they did and you know that i don't want to ruin the plot of blade runner at all for anybody <laughs> that wants to watch it but your character could have honor as a main stat 
where they have all of the skills used to hide the party in plain sight to know how to move and navigate about mm. how to stealth but more in a social situation it's not about hiding mm. it's about blending in about having to you know play the the states to bribe officials to do everything to do with actually fitting in that for me would be like honor as an example that isn't sort of stereotypically samurai or knights templar or whatever you would be although those again have very good uses you can bring into the game as long as you're sensible and you don't as i say take the stereotype too far you've got to keep a a blend on types of characters and and how they view the world but i like to think about it like that if you can put honor as a main stat into something it kind of makes more sense i think and just to sort of quickly add to that before we move on is that honor we treat it like as a seventh or eighth ability score check but it's treated differently in the sense that we you can't improve it and I think, I can't remember if it's the same for Sanity as well, but like, so obviously you get ability score improvements through certain levels. This doesn't improve because obviously if you're like, well, I improve it by three points and then you're like, oh, your social standing or whatever has changed. Rather at the end of a, an adventure or, or a session, I assume the GM, but in general, I think the group sees like if your character's actions have been honorable or not, have they met the code throughout the adventure and depending on yes or no it either goes up by one point or goes down by one point so i think it it always changes as i believe but i like that idea that you can't it's not necessarily a game stat that you just improve like that again i've always think dnd is a bit like a video game in a sense because obviously you can raise stats quite easily but this does depend on sort of the role playing and it's basically the impact of your actions how are you seeing a bit like in fable you know like where you buy all the houses but then raise all the rent then slowly but surely your honor is going to slide all the way down to the bottom yeah exactly and i you know i quite like that way of thinking about it i was thinking about whether or not you could apply that to any of the other strategies or the other stats in the game. Say you had a campaign that was running along and your character had absolutely taken a walloping throughout. Do you improve the character's constitution to make up for that? Or perhaps mm. they received repeated poisoning or went down and was killed or we've used resurrection rules before in in our campaign uh, Mm. where if you get brought back from the life there are constitution issues that happen afterwards in order to give a sense of gravitas to actually having your character die and that sort of feels a little bit like this being able Mm. to tweak it at the end of each session especially if it's based on what you've done as a player it feels like you directly are impacting that and I quite like that but honor is the only one that does that sanity i believe works as a regular stat so right. you you add it as you you know every fourth level if you want well let's go on to sanity then how is that different to honor and why and why should we include it i guess as a eighth ability score so sanity really does blend the borders between intelligence and wisdom so i think in my opinion wisdom as a saving throw throughout D&D, especially when you think about all of the different spells that require it, mind control, paralysis, has a lot of different spells that to make you, you know, do a wisdom saving throw. Wisdom, I think, is a little bit overused and is a very important stat. And sanity is a really good way of splitting that out a bit and putting more emphasis on the mental side of a saving throw. It describes sanity as being really good for a horror campaign or an eldritch campaign, very Lovecraftian, very Stranger Things, Far Realms, whatever aspect you want to put onto it. But essentially any campaign where you have a genuine sense that what your characters are doing 
could provoke or would provoke madness or at least a, a loss of sanity. There's one thing that you should have a look at when you have a look at the sanity because it does talk a lot about sort of your characters taking traits of madness and it can be quite easy to think about a stereotypical view of madness along the lines of somebody being strapped up in a white jacket and taken off in a van yeah. and, and that's not necessarily how madness works. It can be much more subtle and much more sort of delicate than that. So it's well worth having a look at the pages. There's about five or six pages before on 259 and 260. It has a couple of grids about some of the traits that short-term and long-term madness can bring to a character. And they are more interesting things than just your character loses it. Just little ticks like your character needs to keep drinking in order to sort of mm -hmm. um, function or it gets attached to particular lucky charms that don't have anything to do with life. But, you know, quirks that you may consider just putting into a character anyway they don't necessarily have to be game breaking but sanity represents your character's mental fortitude against the horrible unknown if your character fails a sanity saving throw then they could take on traits of madness they could temporarily break down find themselves frightened under mental control anything that could effectively change a character's action based on fear or panic, or a loss of mental control, effectively. So it's that side of things. Positive sanity, sort of being able to be really good at sanity, would indicate a character who is always cool, can stare into the void and look at alien technology <laughs> without sort of losing themselves in it. Um, you could also just bring it on a sort of more physical level. It introduces the idea that you could, your character could move through demiplanes, with different alien physics or gravities or the ways that things move about. If you think about having a campaign where your characters are very briefly turned into gelatinous cubes and have to squeeze their way through different paths or things, and some characters just lose themselves in the madness of being made Ooh, of jelly yeah. and others can sort of keep a, a sense of, of who they are, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. No, I love that idea, actually. I hadn't, I, again, hadn't really thought of that. The idea that, you know, you are influenced in some way to the point that you lose your sense of self, which can be quite horrifying in real life, not just in, in these games. But I think, so obviously I come from this from the sort of point of view that I've played sort of Call of Cthulhu. And I say have read Call of Cthulhu. I know mm. of it. I think there's a mixture of like whether you need to or not. There's a new TV show out just now called Lovecraft Country, which again, I've yet to watch, but the trailers look absolutely spectacular. <laughs> but the... Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one for me because I guess for me, I've always deliberately played other games that are not necessarily D&D for horror specifically or for this. And I think this sanity sort of ability modifier, I'd actually see this more playing into certain campaigns in D&D itself. So for example, Curse of Strahd, where yes. you are taken to another sort of demi-plane and everything about this place is just awful mm. to the fact where it does influence the residents there. And I think that's where this would play in quite a bit. I feel like for me, the sort of mythos and stuff like that, unless you're going to really go into, I don't know, mind player territory i think i struggle because I, I like having my things separate and trying different systems and stuff rather than be like oh we're, well we're going to do a horror game but with dnd rules which i think most people do i mean there's no one right way or the other i yeah. just feel for me that something like this i would try and keep separate to high fantasy but i think it's it is a really interesting one to sort of come about i guess well let me throw in an example then of high fantasy say you were playing a druid so circle of the moon druid and you had the ability to 
wild shape, but also you take on lots of spells to do with polymorphing and to do with interacting with the animal environment. Now, there's a particular series of books that I think they're called the Pelinor books, which I'd really recommend mm. reading if you haven't read them. They're very, very good. But in that, a character essentially develops the ability to turn into a wolf for an extended period of time and absolutely loves it. They love the feeling of energy and the running and the hunting and being in a pack. And this sort of progression gets worse and worse and worse in the sense that they spend longer and longer and longer in that form. Game of Thrones with Warging would be a very good example as mm -hmm. well of somebody taking over other things. They become lost in that sense of wanting to be transformed. So your druid, the more they wild shape, every time they go back to the same form, that same bear or the same rhino or whatever animal you've you've taken as your as your battle form, and you find it harder and harder and harder to stay as your regular form because that's what you want to do. Sanity is a good representation of actually not wanting to stay in that altered form and not taking traits of that altered form with you. You know, if you've spent 48 hours without changing back as a wolf do you come back after failing a sanity saving throw with that sense of wanting to transform back into a wolf at the next opportunity you can and with a real sense of wanting to eat rare meat just something that like comes through like it doesn't necessarily have to be horror it's more of a sort of can your character keep a mental wall between who they are as a person and the unknown transformative properties of magic around them Hmm. That's actually sparked off uh, God, a big memory. Me, I used to watch um, Animorphs when I was like, when I was a teenager, and they have a similar thing where they get the ability to change into animals to help save the earth. You know, typical teenager stuff. And one of them, yeah, gets to the point where they, they're told that you know it's basically the ability is that any animal you can touch, uh, you can turn into that animal. So of course they go to the zoo and they go and like t touch the tigers and one of those interesting plot lines, but one of them loves becoming um, a, a bird of prey to the point where they forget how to change back. And that's a whole series in itself that sort of, and they're told that you need to return constantly back to your human form, so mm. otherwise you will lose yourself. And I, yeah, so yeah. I think yeah. that's an absolutely really good way of using sanity, which doesn't necessarily involve horror element. I think that's the yeah. thing It's that like you want to, cause again, horror is not for everyone, similarly to sort of like maybe the honor stuff is not for everyone, but this is an interesting different way of putting it into a campaign. I think mean, the other thing I was thinking of is, is the idea that if you were to give uh, people the need to make sanity checks when they perform incredibly high-powered magic, so say spell casting from seventh level upwards, like if your cleric invokes a genuine miracle from a deity, do they become hooked on that power and absolutely desperate mm. to do something again? Or there's loads of stories in D&D about mages and archmages who begin to lose themselves amongst their own worlds, you know, be it a demiplane they create so that they can experiment with eldritch horrors and monstrosities that they've found or the ability or need to turn themselves into a lich to survive mm. can that be played off the fact that once you start casting eighth and ninth level spells like a casting a wish for instance you know so the wish spell gives the example of if you cast a wish and you fail the check or there's a percentage chance because you've done something too bad it stops you from casting a wish ever again because of the toll it takes in your body mm. replace that with a sanity check every time you make a wish you have to stay sane otherwise you lose yourself amongst that heady arcane rush of mm. casting something that's way too powerful for your mortal body to control well let's move on then to other adventuring options what did you think of sort of the fear and horror elements of this chapter i think these are really good and again they 
typically put themselves into a horror or eldritch campaign. Those are the sort of times where this would easily be put into. Fear is actually a concept that runs through D&D and has done for a while. So a lot of spells and a lot of effects, I'm thinking the frightening presence from a dragon, for instance, create this fear where your character has disadvantage whenever they conceive a source of their fear. And in often, in a lot of cases, they need to move away or they can't get closer to the source of fear so this is a really good example of potentially putting fear on a situation uh, a particular monster something they can see that effectively penalizes a character without being too bad i think horror is more interesting because it has a more storytelling point of view and i, I often like the things that bring the storytelling mm. aspect to it doesn't necessarily have to just be a monster it can be something they see that has a fundamental issue with your particular character say you went along to your dm and said right i want to be the edge lord my parents were murdered in a alleyway <laughs> behind a theater and now i am one with the knight and have a proper <laughs> batman story then the dm could bring in that horror where if you see something that reminds you of them you know i'm thinking the critical role caleb setting people on fire issue mm. that horror comes back and back and back and can bring in sort of lingering effects that causes your character to unravel slightly yeah i think because it feels to me like so the horror and fear like if you didn't want to necessarily use a sanity ability score these are a good option as well that it's not necessarily something it is a game thing but without having the ability modifier essentially and i think yeah i think with the uh certainly with the horror element it can be with stuff that is not necessarily you know like oh it is a horrible monster but it could be literally just seeing a dead body or anything like that you know it's stuff that is unusual maybe to new adventurers as well i don't know how you'd play it up, um for later levels per se because obviously i think when you get to a certain point certainly in higher levels you are not necessarily immune to being frightened or immune to the horror stuff but i think there are easier ways to defeat the dcs it does say you can obviously increase the dcs and stuff but i think it's one of those things where if you fail the check i think within at the end of the next turn you'll have succeeded in some way you know yeah. what i mean so i, I think this is maybe a yeah. lower level thing rather than a higher level thing but that's just you my could, thought as i say bringing the dc up a little bit is is a good thing but as your monsters and your villains become more convolutedly evil you know, I'm just thinking we've spoken before about seeing astral dreadnoughts or Zariel in the plains of mm. hell, for instance. You could easily bring a high level sense of horror when fallen angel flying towards them. There is that immediate sense where you go, okay, yeah, this isn't good. And <laughs> you have to make a check based on that because you, a sense of overwhelming loss or a sense of overwhelming odds stacked against your character. Maybe it's more of a, a sense of, of, of common sense, but... I think also you can represent the fact that it is maybe a lower level thing by introducing a lot of fear effects and horror effects with monsters often bring in a thing where they say if you pass a check you're immune to that for 24 hours you exactly can do very similar where if your character has or could argue that they have dealt with this and they have put that to bed then they don't have to make a check against that particular thing again perhaps mm -hmm. that could be some way you could get around it yeah no i agree with that let's move on to healing then i think this was actually quite an interesting thing 
Uh, so there's different types of healing variants. And again, I feel some of these could be, I guess it depends on the kind of campaign you want, but there's definitely a version where you can use healing a lot more often than you do. And that feels like campaigns for that would be more combat heavy or be like, okay, we're, we're going to go through higher levels of stuff because uh, we're going to get more stuff done compared to the slower one where it takes a few days to heal and stuff. And that focuses more on intrigue. What do you think of those, for example? They're really cool, aren't they? I think you could see your players absolutely heating you as a DM if you go to them and say, you know what, I've got a great idea. I'm going to slow down natural healing so that your characters don't heal at the end of long rest. And we're also going to change long rest so that they're seven days rather than one day and just see their eyes drop as they go, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, what? But yeah, they're, they're really good ways of introducing a different theme on a campaign. I think... The two examples I would give are perhaps a superhero campaign or a campaign where your characters have some sort of divine spark or ability. So a lot of the the variants, but it gives either slow down or or speed up natural healing in some way. Mm -hmm. So the healing surges, for instance, is a really good example where you can, as an action or even bonus action in combat, you can spend hit dice as if you were having a short rest in the middle of combat like a fighter action surge would be a good example yeah so you know in in stereotypical superhero movies or anime or anything like that where you have the big fight scenes and your character's been beaten up a little bit and then they realize something and they take a moment and the screen goes dark and they go close up yeah (laughs) i remember my past you can't defeat me blah 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 and and there's like the streak of anime light that divides the screen and they go ah yeah that's the sort of healing surge where they spend all 15 of their healing dice and go from five health to 130 health and jump back into the fray so that's a really good way of of introducing like a like a faster healing and and the epic heroism variant where short rests take five minutes and long rests take one hour (laughs) is really ridiculous where you do have regenerative like heroes that can pick themselves up immediately after a fight i mean a campaign like that basically is just an excuse for you to have overpowered characters that can defeat everything i mean could you imagine playing a campaign like that where we have level 20 characters mm-hmm. with all of these rules on and in a single adventuring day you have to defeat three tarasks several arch devils god hordes of zombies and probably you're fine if you <laughs> just sit out of each one like I, like it is a very different feel to it and you go the other way where the slow natural healing where you don't heal at the end of a long rest you don't get your sort of hit points back which which is something that actually a lot of dms have a problem with you know the idea that you go to bed and wake up and that huge mm. griffin slash across your chest is suddenly gone and, and healed you know that you need to spend hit dice rather than just healing outright and then slowing down long rests and short rests with gritty realism you can bring a sense of importance to combat with those rules so does your character really want to get into that fight knowing that it's going to take them seven days to get over it afterwards especially in a campaign where you want to introduce more longer term travel maybe you have uh, more of a sort of i'm thinking firefly-esque campaign or a sort of pirate campaign where your ship takes a couple weeks to get between islands that sort of feel to it you could slow down the campaign and give more of an importance on finding sanctuary and keeping out of trouble. Mm. I could see it working quite well. I mean, would you use those rules yourself? Is that something you'd think about or... The thing for me, I guess, it depends on the downtime aspect of it. So of course, in, in certainly when we're playing D&D, obviously we're going for one 
moment to the next. And then there'll be sometimes we're like, okay, you've got a week in town. What do you do? I'm wondering if certainly like the slow natural hearing combined with like gritty realism. And if this happens in Call of Cthulhu as well, is that once you've finished an adventure in quotation marks, you say, okay, you get a month. What do you do? And then all that time is shrunk down. It just means that whilst the plot is spread out and maybe the story moves on without the characters for a little bit. I would be very interested to see if anyone plays with these variants and then sticks to like what happens day to day, unless it's a very story driven thing in the sense of like it's a lot of politics, you know, and it does talk about like using these variants. It's like this is where combat itself has to be avoided. And I, then I was like, well, what if you had these plus maybe the speed factor? Mm. Uh, but you know like so that i just feel like because it's like one thing that happens in D a lot or, and I, this is not necessarily a, a horrible or a dismissive mark but obviously there's a lot of planning and there's a lot of talking which gms can love or hate you know it means that they don't have to talk for half an hour whilst the players figure something out but usually what happens is that you, you plan for 40 minutes 50 minutes etc get to the first stage and then there's been a, a thing that you've not thought about or you've not been it's not been revealed to because it's part of the surprise and all the planning goes out the window and for me, like, I don't mind that, but as long as these things drive the story forward, you're always doing something rather than focusing on the details of now. Otherwise, you just get stuck in it. And I wonder with this sort of thing is like, okay, how are you going to progress the story if maybe your characters are not, or, or your players, sorry, are not really invested in the social encounters? If they're more like, we want to fight things, oh, we've got to wait. I think there's a, there needs to be a balance between that. And as long as the players are on board, it's fine. But I think like... I don't know. I, I, I'd be very interested to see, because I've never played anything like this, so I'd be interesting to see how people would, not necessarily cope in quotation marks, but it, how they would play with it and, and, and their sort of character choices would change. The other thing to mention as well with the um, epic heroism rest variant is that because obviously if, if you do make your short rest down to five minutes and the uh, long rest down to an hour, it's like, well, what happens to spellcasters? And I think that was quite interesting is that with spellcasters, you regain only certain spells back on certain rests, so that you only gain up to a level, I think it was like fifth or below, etc. And and then you have to work on it. So you're not, that is a kind of a, a little bit of a disadvantage to spellcasting classes with this thing. Because obviously, if you are able to get all your spell slots back, then great, you could have that level seven or eight spell, again, for higher levels. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really wouldn't know how to rule those things. And again, I guess I said maybe I need to be more confident in my D&D &D stuff. But I think Slow Natural Hearing would be interesting for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that one for sure, but I don't know about Gritty Realism myself. I, I think it, they bring really, really strong adventure and themes to a campaign. Like you could really see pushing that horror element by making healing really really tricky so avoiding the baddies is, is really important as opposed to just sort of fronting up and fighting everything sometimes dnd is fantastic by giving your characters that feeling of we can do anything and fronting up to the baddie and taking them on but if you want to have that feeling that actually your characters can't do that and they need to be more sensible this would be a really good way of sort of bringing that in and then just to just to quickly add, there's also another little bit right at the beginning of the healing section, which talks about healer's kit dependency, that no one can heal up unless one of you has bought or has like a healer's kit, which you expend the use of, mm. which again, I think that would be quite, We've I think we've done that before, or at least I've been aware of it where like, oh, you can't heal. Do you have a healer's kit? Are you able yeah. to stabilize them? And that is, again, a bit more into the gritty realism, like, are you able to to save this person? Are you able to help them? 
Healer's kits are one of the least used and most underrated pieces of equipment in the game. And there is a feat along with healer's kits, just incidentally, mm. where you can use a healer's kit, I think, once per long rest on people to do a load of healing. And it's really good. It's really, really good. It stacks up with the feat. I can't remember what it's called. It's Inspirational Leader, where you basically oh. just ramp the 10 minutes and give people temporary hit points. Yeah. <laughs> Both of those work really, really well together. So definitely worth a shout. But yeah, I think the healer's kit dependency works fantastic in low-level combat or where you want healing to be tricky. I think it perhaps falls down a little bit where you've got higher-level characters with a lot of money. If you've just picked up 50,000 gold pieces as a group, for instance, buying healer's kits are going to be pretty easy. So unless you're making them a scarce resource, mm -hmm. maybe that will only work really well towards the beginning of the game. But again, quite a fun addition. All right, let's move on then to... Um, <laughs> where I have to grit my teeth and say this, but like firearms and explosives. What what do you think of these options in this uh, chapter? So weirdly enough, we've been sort of talking about firearms in D&D through the Artificer class, mm -hmm. because that was the first class to actually bring in an optional proficiency in firearms. And when I think of firearms and high fantasy it's sort of split into two categories. You've got what I would like to call your single-use loading inaccurate weapons, such as your splintlock pistols and your muskets, which represent very crude gunpowder explosions where a single pellet is fired out wildly and it is probably quite powerful, but also very difficult to use. Mm -hmm. That's the retro Renaissance style gunpowder technology but then you've also then got higher tech technology such as automatic pistols going right the way through to antimatter rifles which mm. represent higher level tech effectively firearms are powerful and once you start getting beyond the renaissance one so the renaissance items you've got pistols and muskets which deal a d10 or a d12 piercing they have loading spoiler there is very little difference between these and crossbows they are very similar in the way that they work so mm. they're not going to break your game too much there are monsters which perhaps we'll talk about soon that have this sort of weaponry and artifices can drill themselves around these sort of weapons you can put them into your campaign without too much change i think renaissance firearms are not going to make a bit of difference and it can be fun to introduce them because even if you are dealing with high magic where or high fantasy where magic is prevalent you can put these sort of renaissance gunpowder weapons in that do huge damage but are slow unwieldy and have a tendency to explode so mm. perhaps they're not best used or relied upon in the world so our campaign that we run where we have a, a sense of you know age of sail vast oceans mm. ships do have cannons on them with cannonballs but at the same time they don't invest too heavily in them because if you can get a third level spellcaster on the boat that can throw a fireball yep. it's likely to do just as much if not more damage to the opposing ship that's on you know chasing you so it's it, they're fairly balanced out yeah. once you start going onto the modern and futuristic guns they begin to get a little bit more powerful so as a dm you have to decide whether or not you are setting your campaign in a world with that technology or perhaps they are relics with limited ammunition it's going to be a tricky one for you to balance out 
my sort of gripe with this is that you've already got something that's so magic and powerful with being magical spell casting things you are warping reality around you and yet some people go but what if we had guns as well and you're like <laughs> oh like you said the earlier sort of renaissance one that i can understand being, being interesting in the sense of like because it's wildly inaccurate you need to literally be standing within 20 feet of someone to shoot and even that you know like when you think of like pistols and jewels mm-hmm. and stuff like that that's you know with fairly close range and even then people miss all the time but as soon as you mentioned the word antimatter rifle and then you look and you look at the, the damage is like okay 68 that makes sense oh but it's necrotic damage because obviously if you'd say, oh, it's force damage or anything a bit less, say, oh, well, the, the players themselves, they will be resistant to it because they've got magic. I just, I was like, I feel like, and maybe it's just me, it's very hard to put in the sci-fi elements like that with magic. Like, I feel mm. that's too world-bending to me and it breaks the reality for me. Like, I feel like, you know, like, because you explain something as well, like, oh, well, this is done by magic. And you're like, okay, yeah, I can take that. Oh no, it's done by science. And then you're trying to over-explain the world as a result and i just uh no i think you've got you've got three options in my head either you set the campaign in a modern day scenario so where you could walk down the street in modern day america and pick up a rifle i think that's Mm -hmm. americans would be familiar with that sort of existence you could have a fallen kingdom of some kind so your high fantasy setup is post some sort of calamity where this sort of tech existed before and you pick it up or it sort of is in a campaign from that or we've spoken a lot about an Eberron sort of setting with Magitech and maybe you could put a Magitech spin on this it's not necessarily just guns it's more of a magic arcane propulsion system that is used and is rare and a magic item in itself I mean the thing to remember is yes 68 necrotic damage is a huge amount but there are some very rare and legendary magical items in D&D that do a lot more damage than that and are much scarier, like staffs that can throw about seven or eight fireballs a day. Mm. That's really going to be a, a sort of a, an important thing. Mm. So there are ways to put these things into your game, but you do have to be very careful that you don't break the game because it's all very great you having a level one character that can do 30 damage on a hit. That's wonderful, but you may mm. find the scaling of the game quite difficult to get right no you shouldn't try it's always a good laugh but level one combat's difficult enough and if your character has an antimatter rifle it may be even trickier (laughs) what i did take away from this was sort of the alien technology and working that out because again i think it's for me because i've been watching a lot of star trek recently is that a lot of fighting and stuff like that i feel like sci-fi you equate it with what they've got guns and we need to outshoot them and stuff like that whereas I think what normally happens is if you find something that you don't know, you're like, what is it? It must be some futuristic relic that's going to help save the world. And no, it's a cigarette lighter. No, it's um, a laser knife that you use to, <laughs> to toast your bread. So I, that's why I quite liked about this is that you could, it says that you could work out what this item is that you found through intelligence checks or a series of intelligence checks. And it gives examples such as a cigarette lighter, a calculator, um, you know, a, a computer or a hovercraft. So I think what I would like to do is that if i was going to include alien tech it wouldn't be combatant tech at all it'll be stuff like that maybe would buff or debuff you or the enemy so like oh it's a portal cannon you can just appear and disappear 
fucking portal or yeah. or you know i'd rather have that sort of element to it rather than it's a pistol it's going to shoot a hole through you you know what i mean exactly and there, there are always clever ways you can bring in plot points and flavor to your campaign that aren't necessarily combat based and mm-hmm. absolutely your characters find some sort of device that seems to spit random numbers out and has some sort of internal infernal calculations some sort of plot that it's working out that you've got to try and figure out because if only you could you would figure out the main plot point of the campaign and it is just a hand calculator and it's yeah. doing addition and your characters don't understand what's going on <laughs> that would be something you could very easily put in or a hairdryer for instance this sort of <gasps> ability yes. to spit warm air out at something and you're like oh this must have a really important use and you're like no it's a hairdryer you know yeah exactly <laughs> All right, well, let's go on to the sort of final bit then, plot points. What are plot points? <laughs> plot points are hilarious, and they are a way to effectively totally throw a random style of play on your players. Now, if you are in a situation, and it describes this as hearing about these rules, you think your players may abuse it, they're probably not for you. That's very true. There's going to be a very particular group of people that this works really well in, and it works really well where people want to get involved in DMing, or there's lots of DMs at a table that all want to play. This is a good way of getting people involved. And Mm. there are different options. The first two options, what a twist and the plot thickens, are very related. So we'll kind of mix those together. But effectively, everybody has one plot point, or more if you want, but same one that you can use per session. Somebody starts as a DM and is DMing, and any player at any point in that session can use a plot point as part of the option one, what a twist, to put something into the campaign that then has to become part of the narrative and is true. So it gives an example of... You're in a dungeon and one of the players spends a plot point to say they find a secret door and the DM has to bring that into the campaign. It also talks about the fact that you've got to chat these things through as a group so you don't do anything too ridiculous that's going to break it. But again, that goes back to the big rule. If you think people are going to abuse it, maybe this isn't for you. It's it's a very collaborative thing. But then option two goes further to say that if somebody does that, the person round the table from them then adds a complication into it. So, Mm. for instance, if player one says there is a secret door, player two then says, but it's trapped, is a good example of that sort of change. So Mm -hmm. there's only ever one person DMing, but people have more of a collaborative scope to influence the story. And it's a really good way of getting people's sort of ideas involved. Option three, we've spoken about before as incorporating in our own campaigns because it's really, really random. The gods must be crazy (laughs) where you spend a plot point to effectively take the reins as DM from somebody at the table. So, for instance, if you started playing a game with me and a couple of friends and you were DMing for the first hour and then I decide to spend my plot point, I physically become the DM, my NPC well, my, my player becomes an NPC that follows the gang around and I take control of the story. Mm. And everything I do has to become canon. That is, in my head, really funny because you build up a collaborative story where no one person has the reins of exactly what's going to happen. You're swinging it around and passing it from one person to another and it just can get absolutely mad. But mm. again, the randomness is off the scale and you have to be, well, you could say very good at improv or very willing to make things up on the fly because it will not fit into a plan that you have in your head. 
literally, I put that in my notes. I said, must be good at improv for this. There's a, there's a rule in, in the sense of like, you can come in with an idea, but you have to be adaptable for it. So you could like, if you were thinking, oh, well, they find alien tech at some point, but then the story is not going in that direction. You need to be quick on your feet. If you went by the time you spend your, um, your plot point and take over. I found this interesting. So plot points are right at the beginning. It says like you get one per session. And then once you spend it, you can't regain it until everyone has spent their plot point. And I assume this applies to the gods must be crazy as well. So I actually liked your, that was a really good idea. You had like, rather than just saying you have a point, it's more like on the hour, someone has to spend a point. Because I was like, how long would the session be? It sounds mm. like it could be like a whole day's worth, like, you know, eight hours and stuff, which is very hard when you're GMing, as, as we both know. Mm. So I, I was just trying to work out, like, what I guess, like, for this, for plot points to work, you need a smaller group, so maybe five, mm. no more than that, because otherwise it is going to be completely crazy, people taking stuff in and out of underneath yeah, people, yeah. and having maybe a set minimum time so that you can establish what you've brought to the table. Because again, it talks about everyone who's playing needs to have something prepared or have an idea, I guess. Yeah. And you don't have to do it within sessions as well. You could also have a campaign where people take a session each and just switch the DMing that way. So the plot point is less of a thing, but the more concept is you do the first session and the characters do something, and then I do the second session that spans and builds on that and then another player does the third session and people have time to do it in that way. Or maybe, as you say, you've got a minimum time. That works really well as well. You know you're going to have a break after two hours. Somebody comes back after the break and takes the reins. I'd be very careful about doing it mid-combat because it could get really complicated. But hey, you can do it mid-combat because maybe the combatants change halfway through and suddenly the enemies are like, oh, what a misunderstanding. Let's uh, let's help you now. (laughs) And people just have to adapt on the fly. I feel like I would love to try this out, certainly as a DM. But again, like you said, I think it's it, what it says, it's for people who are wanting to try DMing, but not so much. I actually would just encourage anyone to try this one because I feel mm. like a lot of, we've talked about this before, a lot of people love playing in D&D, but they get worried about actually running it. And I feel that this option, it could get to a point where you've not gone because you're like, oh God, I don't have anything. And then you're right at the end and you still haven't got anything. Whereas rather than just maybe forcing an order, perhaps of saying, okay, this session, it's going to be you. And the next session, it's going to be me. And then it's going to be Brian, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. I, I love the, the concept of it. And actually going back to the, the first two options, again, that is very much, it talks about like, you need to talk through it and justify it to everyone else. So it, there is a veto there, but I guess the reason they say like, oh, if you're worried your players are going to abuse it, this is not for you. It's probably because you've had sessions where the player's gone, but we want to talk to this NPC and then we want to take them with us and then we're just going to avoid the plot altogether so it's when they all gang up and say yeah we're going to do this if you're having that sort of relationship or that's the sort of experience you're getting in your sessions i think it's time for a different group i've got to be honest because that's just not a healthy relationship at all remember you can always chat to people about that sort of thing it's always worth actually speaking through and saying i'm not necessarily enjoying this can we have a think about it but you're right there's different groups and different styles of play and different campaigns and there's people out there for everybody i would strongly recommend everybody goes on to discord or reddit or wider places into the internet because there are groups out there for everybody if you want to play and try something different out of all these different options and stuff is there one that you would definitely would want to implement and is there one that you definitely would not want to implement out of all these options Yes, I could really see myself, and I almost wish in a sort of way we 
the campaign we run is set in, as I say, the world of sail with these boats that take you from island to island. And what I wanted to give was this sort of expanse of the world that was totally covered by water and was basically just minimal land everywhere. And perhaps if I had put in things like gritty realism, where the short rests were eight mm. hours and the long rests were seven days, I could have introduced a campaign where the islands genuinely were like two to three weeks away from each other and that sailing long distances was part of how things work. Mm. So that would be interesting. I think I, I, I wish I had done that potentially. I, I like the idea of using, we're leaning on magic a little bit more for healing, mm. making that an important thing. Yeah, and I could really see myself using honor and sanity. I'm, I'm thinking about that. I, I still think I could probably put that into a game that you guys would enjoy that was not stereotypically Cthulhu mm. or Samurai. I think mm. I'd probably try doing that. I would love to try the plot points one at some point. We have spoken about it before, about having basically just a guild and then you send out the party, who, whoever's attended. Essentially, um, it's there is a it's a type of game called, I think it's, the, oh, I swear I'm going to get it wrong, it's like the Western Lands March or something like that, where it's more about the availability of the DM rather than the player saying like, okay, I'm going to run a game on this day, who else is free? And then out of those couple of players, you're like, okay, now you're going on the quest. And it, it's a self-contained adventure. Mm-hmm. If you do that, but have the rotating DM, that's what we were talking about. It was like, you, we set up the world as the adventuring guild and you're like, who's free to go on this adventure? Great. Mm-hmm. And then you ex- and you expand the world from this point. Yeah, I think exactly. that's, a, that's a really cool way of getting people into story creating and yes, anding certain things. You could bring out other uh, minor characters you've met in other games and then put your own twist on what you thought that was special about them. So I think, yeah, I'd love to do more plot point stuff it's just more about other people wanting to do it that's not just you and me ryan who's always running everything exactly but it's a great way of getting people involved because they don't have to dm every week they can if you're if you're meeting once every three or four weeks and there's five of you and you're all sharing it you've only got to prepare two sessions a year and you get to play a lot of stuff so i think it's a really good yeah i like that idea we're probably going to end up doing that at some point once we all get a bit more time yes yes Well, thank you, Ryan. It's nice to see so many different options. And I hadn't really heard of um, certainly honor as an ability score. So that, that was interesting to read about and wonder whether or not I could put it in my campaigns as well. So thank you so much for that. That's really No really worries. And what are we going to be doing next time? So, um, <laughs> so I was thinking, what's, what have we done recently in our own campaign that I thought, that's amazing. So that's sort of point one. Point two is like, what is something that I disagreed with through reading stuff recently? And I thought, well, guns and explosions, I'm not a big fan of in general. And how can I combine the two? So next time, we are going to be looking at the GIF, as in not the, the GIF we talked about earlier, about the sort of alien race that uh, overthrew the mind players. No, no, we're going to talk about space hippos, essentially. <laughs> Which is brilliant. (laughs) They are just the most ridiculous things. And and as I say, I saw them in, is it Mordekainen's? Yes. And they just look brilliant. And I think they've been in D&D for a long time. So yeah, looking forward to talking about them. So guess who forgot to talk about social plugs, etc. Whoops. All right, well, we'll do it now. 
You can find Ryan on YouTube on his channel, that's Ursa Ryan, where he does all sorts of amazing cool stuff with Civ, uh, especially Civilization VI with the new season pass, I think it is. He's also got a Discord and a Patreon, so go check out his stuff there. Me, I run What Am I Rolling, a twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. We release episodes every two weeks on a Sunday. And yeah, that's going well. So you can find it on the What Am I Rolling website. That's www.wairpodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WAIR underscore podcast. Both me and Ryan are in TBA Mondays, which is a D&D homebrewed YouTube series that comes out on YouTube at points. We're struggling at the moment due to internet stuff, but it is really good and we highly recommend you watch it. So that is TBA Mondays on YouTube and on Twitter. If you want to follow that, that's at D&D TBA. Great. Thanks. Brilliant. Well, until next time, thanks for listening and we will talk to you then. All right, done. Right. <laughs> Goodbye. <Bye>. <laughs>what an ending what an ending i the thing is that we did say that but talk to you later and i was like oh that's a good one and i completely forgot about it oh make a sanity serving try <laughs> <laughs>